evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. I have a brand new guest on. His name is Chris Felder. He is a non-lawyer advisor and Florida chair for National Parents Organization in Sarasota, Florida. Mr. Felder's role as a non-lawyer in matters related to family law is specialized and relatively new within the legal industry as a means of providing better services to their clients. His work includes activist education with lawmakers, family law practitioners, key influencers, and families openly interested in utilizing education methods that affect justice-oriented social change and the process of making changes to the family law system. The initiatives he leads engage participants in guiding learning activities that help the families to understand themselves as capable of affecting change for social justice in family law. And good morning to you, Chris. And how did you get involved in all of this? Boy, I didn't realize what a mouthful that was till I heard you say it. I, I guess I, I hadn't heard it read out loud before. Uh, <laughs> I, this, it's um, certainly not a, a short story, but I'm going to try to keep it short. Um, I found myself uh, one day, the uh, surprise to me, being uh, getting divorced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, hired an attorney that uh, within a, a very short period of time told me, oh, my goodness, this is the you know, worst case I've ever heard. Um, we need to get custody evaluators involved. We need to get all these other experts involved. And then as soon as all those people had been initiated through the court, um, my attorney disappeared. So I was forced, she, she had a personal matter. So I was forced to get another attorney uh, at the recommendation or at the referral of my, my first attorney. That attorney fired me within less than 60 days because I wasn't a good client. Not that I wasn't paying, but apparently it wasn't a good client. Mm-hmm. Uh, then my ex had changed attorneys to where she was apparently such a, uh, a challenging personality that I couldn't find an attorney in town or in the neighboring communities that would be willing to go up against her. Uh, when I did find an attorney, that attorney represented me for a number of months before he said, I apologize, I've done something bad. You need to fire me. I've, you know, I'm, I'm operating in conflict with the, the guidance of the bar, the rules of the bar. And I, so I had to fire him. And then I ended up with another. Anyway, to, to make a long story short, um, a couple of years into it and, and a couple hundred thousand dollars into it, uh, having not made really any, in my mind, progress, or I had been divorced at that point, but the uh, settlement agreement was sloppily written. Um, my ex-wife was not living by it. So I had to start representing myself in court. And I, that was a giant leap of faith that I could do it. Uh, but I very quickly started to learn the, the rules of the road, the, the laws, the, the policies that govern these uh, different agencies that I was coming in contact with. And I... Before I knew it, I was advising other people, you know, not offering legal advice, but saying, hey, this is where I would go with this. This is where I would go with that for, for more information. And uh, uh, my uh, very, very quickly, I was getting phone calls from all across the country with questions of, you know, I understand you're an expert at child support. Can you put, point me in the right direction here, there? 
and years into this, uh, six plus years into this, there was um, uh, the uh, person who was the chair for Florida for the National Parents Organization uh, decided to, to take a different path, uh, which created a vacancy for me. And they asked me to, to step in as Florida chair. I want to say, not to toot my own horn, that I'm probably making uh, the most progress in the state of Florida with regard to uh, legislative change in, in speaking to judges across the state, um, trying to approach this from both a top-down perspective and a bottom-up perspective as far as the, the, the system, where um, there are others in the state of Florida that are uh, much better at uh, offering kind of a uh, a shoulder to cry on and therapy and even even day-to-day -day, uh, legal advice on how to draft documents, what to file, when to file, uh, what judicial procedures are. Uh, but, but my niche has been kind of educating uh, legislators on the larger problems, how we got to this point, uh, trying to couch it very much as, hey, I'm on your side. Um, I understand it's not as... Uh, uh, it's, it's not, you know, these systems happened as, as a matter of, uh, with, with good intention. Uh, I don't think that the system was created to be dysfunctional, mm -hmm. um, which we, we can certainly get more into. The, it just happened. And now that we recognize that it's happened, and now that we can identify specific points within the system where it is, uh, measurable. Let's make efforts to fix it. Uh, the problem does seem to be so big to some of these stakeholders that they have no idea where to even start. So that's becomes our job as, as citizens to, to do the drafting and, 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 and provide an education and try to steer them as to this is what is um, possible in the short term. This would be that first bite at the apple. Here's an opportunity to uh, in, you know, a video on YouTube, but there's, I'm speaking to a subcommittee for children and families at our state house. And, and my request to them is uh, let's add legislation that requires a, a program level performance audit. And that would essentially measure these different agencies. And there are five of them that come in contact with split families that are, I mean, I, I can, I don't know that off the top of my head, I can recite all the laws and policies, but uh, I certainly could if I was had my notes in front of me. Um, they're not following laws. They're not following their own policies as it pertains to uh, split families. And while each of these different agencies has their own swim lanes, they don't have the authority to cross swim lanes and, and correct each other. Uh, and, and where does this reform begin? It begins at trying to educate each of the agencies and I include the judiciary in that, that when Judge Smith uh, issues a ruling for the Johnson family. Judge Smith doesn't understand how, when the Johnson family leaves the courtroom, how those other agencies, the other four agencies, I'll list them, uh, the Department of Children and Families, which is our version of CPS, uh, uh, Child Support Services, the school board, law enforcement, how they're not only misinterpreting rulings, but in often cases they're ignoring and disregarding rulings. 
in more cases than not, they're ignoring the statutes. They're ignoring, again, the policies that govern them as it pertains to split families. And there's no mechanism in place for any of these families to raise attention to it, raise awareness to uh, call, escalate the issue with a supervisor at these agencies to, I mean, I'll, I'll use uh, law enforcement as an example. Once you get to the sheriff in Florida, there is nobody over the sheriff. Mm-hmm. So they can disregard the law. They can use their quote unquote, uh, broad discretion to administer authority. And that broad discretion to administer authority has turned into adjudicating. It has turned into picking teams. It has turned into, there are financial mandates and incentives that are directing some of these agencies to comply with and apply certain aspects of these laws and then totally disregard other aspects of the laws, which has the effect of picking sides and, uh, and separating, this is the, the crux of it, separating parents from their children, separating parents from their pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the direction you'll hear, and I know I'm not, you know, everybody who listens to your podcast has heard this one before, you should hire a lawyer. And these are agencies that, most of which are you know, working under the executive branch, you're not supposed to need a lawyer. They're supposed to follow their own rules. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm no. sure I rambled enough. Well, they're not following their own rules and there's no accountability within the law enforcement, judiciary, CPS, or the school districts, which are... Um, in participation with the uh, parent who has the personality disorder? They, they all, well, <clears throat> I guess it depends. There's, there's a number of different flavors of this. Uh, no two stories are the same. It, however, I agree with you that it, it often ends up that way, right? It often ends up that I'll use the school as an example they tend to side with the person who is uh, creating this uh, convincing but terrible narrative about the other parent. Um, but I com- compound that with the fact that they have not policies but practices that say, hey, in the instance where there are two parents that, that disagree, um, we're going to choose, for instance, the registering parent. We're going to go with the registering parents' opinion. And that could have been somebody, in my case, it was the, the mother. Mm-hmm. And she had filled out the paperwork for our children years before we contemplated getting divorced. Mm-hmm. That had nothing to do with our divorce. And the filling out the paperwork is a ministerial task. It is not on its own a relinquishment of, of rights on my part. And I was involved in the, in the paperwork. Uh, Again, there's no policy. I, I pointed out to the school boards and, and other people within government that registering parent is not defined in state law. It's not defined in school board policy. It's a practice. So mm-hmm. somebody decided at some point, and this has been going on for decades, that we are going to defer to the registering parent. And it's just been, it's now become tradition. It's a custom. Uh, and it's hard to argue for change. I've been up in front of the school board. I've been, I've had great conversations with the office of general counsel for the school board. 
and they shrug and say, you're right. And then you don't see them correct it Mm -hmm. because correcting it would require effort. I've drafted the language and said, here you go. Here's, here's a suggested language for how you should handle these instances. And it just seems that they're so stuck on, this is politics in general, right? So stuck on whatever that shiny object is, whatever's going on in the world, it's masks. It's, you know, how, you know, which direction the kids are sitting in, Mm -hmm. uh, in class, whatever it is. Uh, now there's a lot on the, in, I live in Florida. So the whole, um, don't say gay stuff is getting a lot of attention. Uh, unfortunately the, um, those political narratives are clouding the, the simple issues of the school board is acting outside of, uh, not just federal law, but state law and outside of court, um, court orders. And you can't take your court order then to the court and say, Hey, your honor, uh, the, the school's not letting me get access to my kids. The judge is going to say, well, the school is not a litigant, right? This is between you and your, your ex. So I can't force the school to do anything. All right. Different scenario. Let's take, get law enforcement. Hey, deputy, can you come with me so I can go pick up my kids? I have a court order in one hand. I have a statute in the other that says, uh, in the absence of a court order, I have equal access to my kids. And, uh, unfortunately the law enforcement is a, is a different jurisdiction. They're a different swim lane. So they can't tell the school board what to do. Mm-hmm. And, and yet I've reminded all of them, I've got some great stories, but I've reminded these agencies, like you, you, you have a responsibility. You have a legal and ethical obligation to protect, preserve the child and the family. And yet you use this, we have broad discretion to administer authority against us. And then you create your own reasonableness standards to say, I know we didn't do it the best way we could have or should have, but we, we did well enough. Sorry for the, sorry for the outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, with these school districts, and I found this irritating was, you know, at the beginning of the year, they send home with the child, a slip of paper on who's to be called first Who's to be called? Say, or, you know, I guess you get three people that the, that the schoolhouse could call if there's an emergency. And either I was not on it, or I had to go to the school and make sure I was on it. And in the end, I was always the last to know. Anyway, not by the school, but by a friend who would call me on the phone and say, "Hey, do you know your son's being taken to the ER with a broken leg in, from gym class?" It's like I didn't know that. This is what, and this is what's happened. I'm sure other parents can identify with this. It's so, um, I, I don't know what to say. In Florida, we have a new law, um, and I encourage anybody and everybody to look it up because it's, it's very interesting. Uh, the uh, sponsor of the bill is Aaron Grawl, house rep from, um, I think, Indian River County, Florida. Her bill was the Parents' Bill of Rights. Now, it's not to be confused with another one. There are two of them that sound very similar. But the Parents' Bill of Rights essentially said that you as the parent were entitled to have all this information. So whatever it was, you're... you're child's skinned his knee, you're entitled to that information. Um, and, and it seems that that 
creation of that law, which was only signed into law about a year ago, is actually making change. The What's concerning to me is there were already laws on the books that were not being complied with by 66 of Florida's 67 counties. So while I appreciate, <clears throat> excuse me, the spirit of creating a law or amending a law, it does not resolve the fact that there's nobody holding the agencies accountable for it. The, the, the bill and the law itself does not have any teeth in it. It doesn't say if you think that your rights have been violated, call this phone number. It doesn't say, um, you know, you should call the superintendent and, and it, it doesn't give you any direction. So what you would have to do is find a lawyer to sue the school board for what? That junior skinned his knee and nobody told you? Mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, more not to pick on this, but some of these laws have to do with now LGBTQ oriented stuff. So the idea that junior tells a guidance counselor that he's gay and they didn't tell the parents. So what now the parents have to go hire an attorney to sue the school board to what end? Mm -hmm. What, what financial setback or what, what are they trying to reclaim? What are their financial damages associated with that? It, and then that's a different, you know, we can go down that rabbit hole uh, for all of a second. You know, if you were successful in finding an attorney, if you were successful in filing a suit against any of these agencies, um, and my guess is it's the same wherever we live in America, but in Florida, um, the, your, your, your petition may quickly get thrown out. Um, one, you really can't sue the state. Mm -hmm. They do have a $200,000 limit on liability, but you have to prove that there are financial damages associated with it, with your suit. Uh, you can, uh, your suit may get thrown out or dismissed because each of the actors, including the agency has what's called qualified immunity. So the presumption is that they're acting in good faith. You would have to essentially prove before you had a trial that they were acting with malice or incompetence, which is incredibly difficult, if not impossible to do. Mm -hmm. So going back to my original point, we're creating laws that we can't enforce. And when you speak to people who are attorneys or much smarter than me about some of these issues, their response is, uh, well, goodness, you know, really they, they just come up empty. There's no, the, the idea is that these, lar these laws are intended to be deterrents. Mm -hmm. and, th and that's kind of the end of the story. Yeah. Deterrence with no teeth, there's no ability to enforce it. I'm sure we can talk more about those, those uh, examples. Yeah, it's, there's no accountability anywhere. It seems this is all a free for all in the courtrooms, with the police. I know people have said they want to defund the police, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's the way to go. I know they need to be educated. You, um, I don't mean to interrupt you. That's right. <laughs> defund the police. I think that's, a, it's a wonderful, uh, this is a wonderful opportunity to bring that up. Um, that 
soundbite is not constructive. It's not productive. Right. There's a lot of noise, but it's not productive. What I believe was intended, what I believe would be productive is to articulate the argument that these agencies are not being held accountable, right? They're not, they're creating their own reasonableness standards. They're creating their own homework, if you will. And there's no mechanism in place for any of us to do anything about it. So use as an example, uh, city police reports to the mayor, the sheriff's department reports to the sheriff. There's nobody over the sheriff's department. We have 67 counties with sheriff's departments. No, there's nobody in charge. Mm-hmm. If they're doing something wrong. And, and by the way, there's something written in the statute that says it's a second degree misdemeanor if the sheriff's department doesn't enforce the laws. But who do you report that to? The sheriff's department. Mm-hmm. Like it does, none of this makes any sense. If the argument was articulated as, listen, if the only way to get you to, to adhere to these laws and follow the, the rules is to threaten you with your funding, then that's what we're asking the legislature to do. Every year they reevaluate the budget. We'd like them to hold your feet to the fire and threaten you with your budget. Mm-hmm. That would be different than defund the police. Mm-hmm. If somebody were to articulate that, that, that may be the only cards we hold is to threaten you with not getting your money. I think that that quickly got perverted, distorted, and, and uh, truncated to defund the police. Right. And as well as CPS kind of using the police to their own means or justification, I really think CPS should just be abolished and have something else put in their place that has um, individuals that are educated and know how to handle people and families and should have families of their own. And they should have, you know, bachelor's degrees in, you know, licensed social worker. Something has to be done with these people. I certainly agree with the need for training. Um, I think it really comes back to, again, the, uh, there needs to be awareness between the different agencies uh, for a judge, for instance, to rely as much as they do on evidence provided by another agency without any real understanding as to how poorly these agencies are trained. The, uh, and, they can, they can have their suspicions, but they don't really know because there's no data available. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's not a lot of awareness between these different siloed agencies. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that there's such a revolving door mm-hmm. at agencies, uh, CPS, or, or we would call Department of Children and Families here, um, is, is the best example. They're not a DCF investigator. Uh, I could be wrong, and I'm, I'm happy to be told I'm wrong, but I believe their tenure is somewhere like less than six months. They're not in the role long enough to become experts. But on the flip side of that argument, I know plenty of people who are like, you know, at my age, who they'll say, I've been practicing law for 25 years. 
great. Does it mean you're any good at it? Just because you haven't been fired, right? Just because you haven't lost your license doesn't mean you're competent. Mm-hmm. And we're trusting and trusting, I say we, it's really the legislature, is entrusting these agencies, DCF or CPS included, that they have the right competence, right? They have the right uh, expertise, the right experience, the right budget to provide the services required by their customers. They call us customers. Mm -hmm. And yet there's no mechanism in place for providing customer feedback, right? I, I don't think that in the year 2022, that it's a uh, ridiculous notion that we could be following in some of the, the best practices of Google or Facebook or any of these uh, well-funded tech companies to at least, or, or goodness, you could just read any business book, send any of these people to go get their MBA and you'll see that the emphasis on following the customer experience, following their journey through uh, benefits and pain points and bottlenecks to understand the, 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 um, you know, the cost benefit analysis at every turn. And now somebody gets to bounce around from agency to agency for different issues, right? Uh, you, you call the sheriff's department to enforce custodial interference and they say, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna enforce that criminal statute, right? That felony allegation. Uh, I'm going to send you to a civil court and you can argue with them. Why are you sending me to a different jurisdiction? This is a criminal statute and you're asking me to bring it up in a civil court, right? These are, there's such an obvious need for, uh, uh, to raise awareness between the different branches of government, but then also their different agencies, Mm -hmm. So, so part of my plan, and I know you didn't ask. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just you know rambling here. But part of my plan is to, uh, from the ground up, create these, uh, what the, the Florida Supreme Court calls family law advisory groups, which would be community-oriented meetings that are initiated by the judiciary, right? It's coming from the Florida Supreme Court, but it would compel not just stakeholders from the family court system to be, to participate in these meetings with, with the general public, obviously, um, but also uh, other actors within the judiciary, like court administration, uh, pro se case coordinators. And then I want to go so far as to say um, all those agents that were, were in your case, right? It should compel um Guardians ad litem, custody evaluators, parenting coordinators, uh, you know, all, all those, that, that uh, gang of usual suspects. And then policymakers from the legislature, from Department of Children and Families, Child Support Services, school board, law enforcement, so that the general public can get, just like any other school board meeting or, or county commission meeting, where we get to have our four or five minutes to, to make our public comment to people who are policymakers and and as quickly as and I'm using this as an example uh, child support can say I could come up with lots of examples child support people say um, yeah we, we understand that that's a, a federal law a state law we understand it's in our own policy handbook but we don't do that we don't follow this process and this is why so that the judge can step in and say you know 
not maybe not the judge, the chair of this committee, I should say. So, so you're, you're on the record, you're on a Zoom call, you're acknowledging that your agency has a practice in conflict with federal law, state law, and their in your policy handbook? Yes, right? And then this committee could create actionable steps to resolve these issues, not for this particular person, this particular family, it might be too late, but for the system. We need to correct the system. And the only way that I see doing that is having these roundtable moderated discussions. And, and again, this is a ground up initiative. There are 20 judicial circuits in Florida. It's been a Florida Supreme Court since 2001. Only four of the judicial circuits are compliant, which means we have to get the other 16 compliant. But even the four that are compliant don't even talk to each other. And, and so what I'm trying to do is open up that channel of communication. It seems that everybody agree, uh, most of these stakeholders agree that we need to be doing this. So uh, little by little, we're trying to create that, that, that momentum. And then uh, simultaneously trying to implement, or I, I'm designing a training that would help these stakeholders to make the best use of their, these flag meetings, family law advisory group flag meetings and, and get the most benefit out of them. The only way that these are gonna be successful is if they get the training, not just to attend. I don't wanna confuse activity with productivity. The only way to move the proverbial ball down the field is to you know, train, say on an annual basis, these stakeholders saying, this is what we're asking for you to do. This is how to run the most effective flag meetings so that we can fix this for the communities. And, and, and an important part I want to add for all the judges that may listen to this, this is not a courtroom. So while judges may be accustomed to controlling the room that they preside over, that's not the purpose of these meetings. These are community-oriented, community-driven, but initiated by the judiciary because they're the only ones who have the authority. It's their swim lane, but it isn't to say that a judge is at the front of the room saying, uh, I only want to have these meetings twice a year because that's the only, that's what I think the community needs. No, no, no. It, it's not what you think the community needs. It's what the community says the community needs. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get a lot of that type of, uh, I'll say a request, uh, a, a demand from the community, a unanimous demand from the community to the judiciary. So they understand how to respond with an administrative order. And we want to uh, inspire them or, or, or um, uh, in these requests state that we're trying to create a, well, nobody can tell the judiciary what to do, right? Right. Uh, want them to create a, a reasonable baseline, a, a floor, a standard that says, you know, these meetings should be held for, I'm just using this as an example, no less frequently than monthly. These meetings should have all these different stakeholders in attendance. These meetings should be on Zoom so that it, it would uh, foster greater participation from the community. It would, uh, not to mention as, as much as we're doing here, this could be uh, uh, then published on a, a YouTube channel, right? Mm -hmm. These are, if we're handling this with the this, this whole matter, the, the holistic view of, of the family law system, if we're giving it the, the attention that it deserves and, and the, uh, the sensitivity and the responsibility that it deserves, 
then nobody should have any qualm with it, right? The, just different stakeholders are worried that you or me are going to stand up in the room and, and, and lose our minds and be bombastic and that that would somehow be destructive. I mean, I'm trying to change their minds, these other stakeholders to realize, no, that's actually constructive. You need to give the public an opportunity to lose their minds. Mm -hmm. You don't understand how you being these other stakeholders, how your system is hiding behind a curtain, right? They're hiding in the shadows and you know, in some instances, I'll use child support as a great example. Mm -hmm. Because of federal law and state law, they suspend a parent, the payer, your due process rights. And this is just beyond the pale. It doesn't make any sense to me. They suspend your due process rights. They will garnish your wages. They will, you know, I could go into more of the economics, but put you in the poorhouse. And there's no education on how to get out of the system. Right. I, I've studied the federal law. I've studied the state law. Most people haven't. And if you go to your state website on child support services, nine out of 10, 49 out of 50, don't tell you this is what's going on. This is how to get it fixed. And instead, these agencies, the operators within these agencies, the customer service agents operate behind reinforced doors and bulletproof glass. And they don't think there's a problem. Right. They, they, they re respond with, you know, we're going to treat the symptom, which is we're going to hide behind bulletproof glass, as opposed to fixing the cancer, fixing what's actually caused people to lose their minds. I would not discourage a parent from getting up for five minutes and screaming their head off at these people. I would encourage it. They need to hear it. But I also believe that the judges think that they're living within their, their four corners, they're living within their box, and they think they're doing a good job. And so they don't understand why people are losing their minds. And therefore, they want to shut them down. They want to whack-a-mole them. Right. And they're, the system, that child support system is set up to fail. And the taxpayers need to know where their money is going with the social securities title 4d and they don't know they don't have a clue what's going on what they're doing to these parents they're taking away their driver's license okay so you're setting a parent up to fail how can they get to their job to pay child support when they don't have a driver's license to your point these are customer focused products i'm using those words intentionally but they they say that these are customer focused products i don't know who the heck the customer is in this instance right? It's, I'm, I'm sure it's the recipient of child support. <laughs> Follow the narrative and how that the history of how we got to this point where we went from keeping, there was a narrative of where all of these men, all of these men, there was like this, this huge, I can't, I can't even think of a, a good word, a good adjective to describe it, but there was an epidemic of men just fleeing their uh, wives and children and leaving their, their, their estranged wives destitute. And so the government with their narrative said, we don't want them living on this, this mother and ch children, living on public assistance. We're gonna fix it with this new child support system. And, and I don't know if, if you have any reason to know how this used to work, but the, it used to be just very state specific. They weren't interconnected from state to state. So all a parent who was paying had to do to avoid the system was <laughs> move out of the state. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but it's turned into much more than keeping a parent, even though the narrative was really a false narrative, it's turned into much more than just keeping one parent off of public assistance. It's turned into uh, a lottery ticket of sorts, which has inspired some other bad behavior. Uh, let me let me paint this analogy. I think your your audience may enjoy this. And, and then I, I uh, again, I could talk about any of these issues for, uh, uh, unfortunately, for hours. Um, let's say there's a scenario where uh, dad, because in 90% of cases, dad's the one who pays child support. Um, I, I certainly understand and appreciate and speak to mothers every day who are the payers of child support. But in this analogy, let me uh, illustrate it as dad's paying child support. And say when he left, when the family broke up during the family dispute, uh, he was making $100,000. And say uh, mom was either making nothing because she was a homemaker or um, let's pick, she was making $40,000 a year. In that scenario, they had one parent that was making, say, among five top 5% of wage earners in the country. And they had another parent that was probably in the middle right? That the, the average household income right now in the United States is still below 200% of the poverty level, which is a story unto itself. But, but as far as the child support system, as soon as they garnish dad's child support or, or he's paying child support, the effect, I don't want to get into the numbers here. We will be here all day, but the effect is they'll bring dad's income down below now 200% of the poverty line. So now the child has two parents, below 200% of the poverty line, all in the spirit of trying to level things off so that the child has the right experience in both families without understanding. I go back to that term, customer focused products. They don't understand the people who are creating these laws have no understanding or appreciation for what happens to the family afterward, right? So these children are not in the right schools. Or, or, or living in the best of conditions. They're not getting the right food. They're not getting the right health care. They're not going to summer camp. They're not any of these things. They are set up for failure financially. When it's time to go to college, they're still going to look at dad's income, which is still among top 5% of wage earners. So they're not eligible for the same financial, uh, financial aid. Mm -hmm. but none of these things, again, I don't mean to get too far off into the weeds, they're not thought through mm -mm. when these rules are created and how the enforcement mechanisms are created. And the fact that parents are hurt and have no ability to appeal to these things because your, your due process rights have been suspended. And, mm -hmm. and there's, you use the state of Florida, there's one phone number for the entire state of Florida. When you call child support services, there's, uh, you'll, when you finally get through, they won't give you their phone number. They won't give you their name. They won't give you an email address. They won't give you a, an agent ID number. They're told it's against their policy to share this. Where if you were to call the IRS and ask them for tax advice, they still give you an ID number. Mm -hmm. But child support services hides behind literally and, and figuratively reinforced doors and bulletproof glass the, 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 the decision makers in this hide because they know that they're doing something terrible to families. And then they point fingers. I'm repeating what I said before. They point fingers to the legislature. If only the legislature would fix this. Well, in Florida, we have a part-time legislature, but still it's a misplaced trust by the legislature that these agencies have 
the experience, the expertise, and the budgets to operate correctly. Well, all of this disaster also started in 1997 when Clinton installed the ASFA. And what the code is, the 42 U.S. Code, Section 666, check this out. I'm going to hold this up to you. Happy Halloween. Right, right. So, you know, the thing is with this child support enforcement is another family court fail is they're incarcerating parents that are imputed an income that never existed. And they think they're going to get money out of this parent that they cannot reasonably pay and or they have called CPS on the parent so many times they the parent has lost their nursing career and they can't work yet they're going after them for child support and then putting them in prison it's it's a it's a tough argument to work around for sure and 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 I plead with the um the legislature to reform this law mm-hmm. but they also educate the judges on the need to use greater, can't think of the words I want to use. Uh, they, they have, they're not supposed to have discretion when it comes to what a parent makes, doesn't make, uh, when, when they apply it to the child support calculator. Except, and unfortunately the, the exception gives them way too much discretion. If the court determines that the parent is unemployed, I'm sorry, involuntarily unemployed, I'm sorry, one more time, voluntarily unemployed or voluntarily underemployed, that is way too subjective. So if I make $100,000, because that's what my job pays, Mm -hmm. and the judge says, but I think you should make $150,000, it is lawful. Mm-hmm. Can't appeal it because it's technically lawful. Mm-hmm. It's unethical. It's despicable, mm-hmm. but it is lawful. And that should be changed. The, to That one issue right there to give the court discretion to determine that you are voluntarily underemployed needs to come off the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be tightened significantly. If there's that parent that says, well, I'm self-employed, therefore, you know, I don't claim any of this income or, you know, I don't have it. I don't file my taxes, whatever. It, you know, there, there's an interesting piece that the judges don't, not many of the judges I talk to grasp is that they don't have jurisdiction over your federal taxes. They, the federal court would have jurisdiction over federal matters the state can't get involved with, for instance, uh, this parent's going to claim this child on their federal income. This parent's going to claim this child. The the state court has no jurisdiction over how you file your federal taxes. And most judges don't realize that until, that I talk to, until you have the conversation and then they have an aha moment and they're like, oh yeah, I guess you're not supposed to do that. But but try when one parent doesn't do it correctly, and then you try to enforce it in the state court, 
then the light bulb goes on and they're like, oh, you know what? I don't have the ability to enforce that because it's not their jurisdiction. It's, it's strange because if you file joint, um, the child support can go after, even if you sign the injured spouse form, they still can go after your current, we'll say you've remarried your current spouse's state income tax, which could, we'll say, be 400 and some dollars. Uh, I've heard that some states can go after a, a, another party's income, which to me is beyond the pale. It doesn't compute. I don't understand how you go after somebody else just because they live in the household. It doesn't make sense. Right. I've heard parents, uh, argue that to go after a federal, uh, your, your federal taxes or federal income or fed, you know, income that you've made somewhere else, uh, taxed somewhere else, that is outside of the jurisdiction. It doesn't keep judges from doing it. Mm-hmm. A judge can say, um, because you have unpaid parking tickets, I'm going to take your children away from you. It doesn't keep a judge from doing that. It's just outside of their jurisdiction. So now you have to appeal it. And, and also you can sue that judge personally because they were operating outside of their jurisdiction. That's the only instance when you can, when they're not uh, protected by judicial immunity is when they're operating outside of their jurisdiction. Uh, so I, I, I haven't seen any of the law that grants the court's authority to go after the new spouse's income. But again, I've heard people talk like that. So I, I, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not intelligent enough on the subject to speak on it. Yeah. Also, you know, um, with the subject of parental alienation, there's backlash with people going through domestic violence. And if they bring up domestic violence in court, they get their kids taken away. And they're being called that they are the alienator. And... In in my case, I didn't even bring any of that up. It's just the opposing attorney had this light bulb moment that he just threw out parental alienation and they just ran with it. <laughs> like when you go into family court, what people don't realize is whoever opens up their mouth first is going to win. <laughs> and whatever they blurt out, whatever silver bullet, you know, you're mentally ill. Oh, parental alienation. These kids are gone. I, I think that that's probably to the individual judge. And, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, uses, there's, a lot, there's a lot of need for training. Um, in, in the state of Florida, we have an office of court education. I'm sure every state has a counterpart. I would encourage your audience to do a public information request to find out what education the judges have. I've read state Supreme Court opinions say that judges that preside over family court should have an education in early childhood development, uh, family dynamics, uh, drug abuse, parental alienation, you know, all those things. But the word is should. 
and the Supreme Court of the state doesn't have any authority to mandate. So instead, they one may infer that they've created a class and then they tell the judge, just like any attorney who needs uh, regular continuing legal education credits, the judges need to get their own credits, that it's one of an option of classes in their course handbook that they can take. And, and, and you and I as litigants hope that our judge has gotten that training, which, I mean, I hate to go use another analogy, but can you imagine if you were jumping on an airplane and, and the, uh, the pilot only took, um, you know, other courses as opposed to how to land the plane? Right. That's, that's what I fear is happening is that these courts, nobody knows. Oh, here, here, while we're on the subject, subject of, of um, public information requests, ask the public information officer at these courts, how many days or when your judge actually works? What days are they taking off? Like how many days this year did they actually show up for mm -hmm. work? These are, you know, so, so here you are asking what education do they have? What training do they have? When do they actually show up to work? Uh, when do their, was their judicial assistant show up for work? And I, I think this is certainly not to make everybody feel more defeated, um, but I think everybody would be stunned to see how casual, how uh, the, the profession doesn't behave. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be diplomatic when I say this. Yeah. <laughs> Give the families the, 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 the sensitivity, the responsibility, the, you know, what, it, what the subject deserves for, for you and me, the risks, the, the, the stakes are so high, right? We're, we're losing our children, potentially losing our children. It's costing us an arm and a leg. We are suffering. This is a, a segue. I didn't intend to, to, to take, um, the mental anguish associated with a family dispute, the financial distress associated with a family dispute. Very often, I'll say more than half the time, the litigants have to move. If you look at some, move their residences. If you look at the most stressful circumstances for anybody, you look at the top reasons why people commit suicide in this country, divorce ranks, regardless of which list you're looking at, one, number two, I mean, it's always top. Moving residences is always number one, number two. Uh, you know, the, the risk of losing your children, number one, number two. And in some cases, you and I know when you lose your children or even half of your children, it's like this constant mourning for a living child. Mm -hmm. And yet the courts don't give it the sensitivity that it deserves. And I don't just mean the judge. I mean the court administration. I mean scheduling timely hearings. I mean allowing the attorneys to uh, abuse the process, uh, dragging things out for, for months or years, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to, uh, to not only allow, but to encourage other uh, officers of the court to get involved with parenting coordinators and guardians ad litem and mediators. Um, to then here, uh, random thought, but to say, you, you're filing for divorce, we're going to make you take a $400 class on what it's like to go through a divorce. 
I got an idea, Your Honor, and everybody else associated with this. Where's your class? You have no understanding of what it's like to be over here. To understand the processes and the dysfunction, the fact that I can't call anybody because everybody says, you better hire an attorney. You better pay somebody else $400 an hour to come up with these answers. And even then, to be honest, the attorneys don't know either. I am I have best friends who are attorneys and, and people who work in the family law system. And when I say, hey, how does this work? Their response is usually a shoulder shrug. They're like, I'm going to have to call somebody. There is no answer book. There's no teacher's manual to get these answers. You have to research and then take a leap of faith that the people upstream from you agree with you. It shouldn't be this way. But the, the ADA, when I, uh, which is what I was getting into, the Americans with Disabilities Act, every family before they're in the courtroom, because of the, fi the family dispute, should be recognized as being disabled, as defined by the Department of Justice. Uh, and, and I'll better qualify that. The, the Title II of the ADA says all these agencies that have any federal funding have to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Certainly the agencies that I've already mentioned to you receive federal funding, the Judiciary, Child Support Services, DCF or, or CPS, uh, school board, uh, law enforcement, they all receive federal funding. And yet, and they all have ADA coordinators. One of, part of my crusade is to get them to recognize that every family that goes into the system should be presumed to be disabled. And getting an accommodation for your disability doesn't mean you get a leg up. It means leveling the playing field. And, and I'll use these words again, the court giving greater care to the families. Before you're in the court system, you're suffering from mental anguish. You might be suffering from financial distress, which only compounds your mental anguish. During your experience in the family court system, more of the same. And most certainly because of your experience in the family court system, more of the same. So I believe every family, as soon as they raise their hands, before they raise their hands, should be granted accommodations. And I'll get into what those accommodations are or should be. But this whole matter, to as soon as you let the court know, I suffer from major depression. I suffer from major anxiety. Under Title II of the ADA, your self-testimony is credible and sufficient, and they are to roll out accommodations. <clears throat> they don't necessarily read minds. I know what accommodations you're asking for, and I'll get to that in a second. Well, no, I, let's get into it now. Um, Family law seems to be the only court anywhere that isn't necessarily recorded. I found in our own Supreme Court order from, in Florida's Supreme Court order from 2010, it's, it appears that there's a typo in it. The typo, uh, it reads, and I'm, I'm doing this from memory, um, all proceedings may be recorded unless a technology device is not available. That's grammatically inaccurate, grammatically incorrect. And so I believe that there's a typo. It should have read, all proceedings shall be recorded unless the technology device is not available. I've been fighting now for years, trying to get the Supreme Court or their Office of Court Administ uh, uh, State Court Administration to at least engage in a conversation to talk about how that could 
be a typo. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. If you have PTSD and the symptoms are severe depression, severe anxiety, and it impairs your daily activities, doesn't have to be a permanent disability. It can be a temporary disability. It doesn't have to be a disability that, that I mean, I can't see. Mm -hmm. I have corrective lenses, right? There are people that can't hear and they wear a hearing aid. There are people that, uh, you know, can't run marathons, but certainly can walk with the help of a, of a cane, right? Just because you use an assistive device doesn't mean you're not disabled. If you have, or if you take medication for your anxiety, doesn't mean you're not disabled. The courts should presume that these folks are disabled and should provide digital court recordings for every proceeding, should offer them, not just provide them, should also provide uh, a companion. So if, you know, I'll use an example as to how that didn't work in my case, and I got some funny analogies to share, but uh, my father's an attorney and he's not a licensed attorney in Florida, but I was in a mediation, not even with my ex-wife, this was with um, a different matter. And I asked my, uh, the court appointed mediator, there's a court mediator involved. And uh, I said, can I bring my father? He's an attorney, but he's not my attorney. And she said, no, you can only have your attorney of record. Otherwise it has to be you, right? That's the spirit of mediation. We don't want other people in, in, in the room. And so then I, not to mock the process, but I raised my hand and I said, I'd like to exercise my rights under title two of the ADA. I have a disability and I request my companion. And she kind of, you know, she was just, she just went like deflated and was like, okay, you can bring your father. You're not supposed to need to use those magic words. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to push special buttons, call special people, call in special favors, send in special memos. You're not supposed to have to. So if you're not supposed to have to, so says title two of the ADA, and yet the courts are making us, let's just presume that these people are disability, well, disabled. Uh, let me use my, if you want to jump in. I, well, it's, uh, it's like a double-edged sword because if a parent says something that, you know, yeah, I have depression and anxiety, you know, cause you're on the witness stand telling the truth, which you should never do. Uh, <laughs> but then the judge will say, what are you on? Which you should reply is, well, that's a HIPAA, you know, um, I, you know, I don't have to discuss that. That's a HIPAA issue to which he'll say, you have to tell me what you're on because some of them are just so bad. And so you may say, well, I'm on a crumb of Ativan 0.25. It's like a crumb. It's minute. Right away, he's calling you mentally ill and you need a psychoval. And so we, we can't solve all the problems. These are judges who are, who are uneducated, ill-informed and, and behaving badly, we'll say. But right, right. The, like the judge isn't supposed to be, the judge isn't, is supposed to be a, an independent arbiter. They're not supposed to be asking you these questions at all. It's supposed to be opposing counsel who, who would be uh, uh, examining you. But the, um, the federal law says that it can't be used against you. So, so if you have bipolar disorder, for instance, or, or, or goodness, you, I'm trying to think of something else, you're schizophrenic. Until there are examples of where there's abuse, 
the law says they're not allowed to use it against you. Mm. You, can't, you, you can't, it's like the minority report dilemma. You can't take somebody's mental health issue and presume that this parent's going to act badly. And that therein is a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, as a parent that if you, if, if your uh, child's other parent has a severe mental health issue, um, you're just waiting for the children to be harmed before the court will do anything. There is a problem. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that, um, as soon as you tell the court that I suffer from some severe anxiety and they don't roll out the red carpet for you, they don't provide accommodations for you. It is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But what's, what's more than that is that, and, and again, the, the, the notion is you've, you're, you've put them on notice, right? You're saying I have anxiety and they're just pouring salt on the wound, right? They're just making it worse. They're making it worse. That's a violation of the ADA, but it's also a violation of the eighth amendment of the bill of rights. And I argue that it should be reviewed as a violation of the eighth, uh, the bill of uh, the eighth amendment, of the bill of rights, which is cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. They knew, so let's use a situation where you're uh, detained. If they know that you have schizophrenia or they know you have severe paranoia and they put you in the hole to where you don't get to have any interaction with any other people, that is knowingly, willfully exacerbating your known situation. And they're not allowed to do that. And every judge that I've spoken to about this has said, oh my goodness, you're right. The failure to me is these judges don't think outside of their little box. As soon as you start introducing, hey, Your Honor, you know there's a federal law over here that, man, that, that, that relates to this? They put it on me. Hey, Chris, can you, can you send me what you're talking about? I'll send it to them. And I get the, oh my goodness, you're right. Mm -hmm. Why are we teaching our judiciary how to do their jobs? Why did I find myself teaching my attorneys how to do their jobs? When you complain to the bar, and I've had some really good arguments as to why the bar should have cracked down on some of these people. The worst penalty you can anticipate reasonably is like a $1,200 fine. I've never seen an instance where the bar has actually taken away somebody's license for the most egregious behavior. I've never mm -hmm. seen it. And, and that's, it takes a year long investigation. And, and then all you get was a, this person has to take a class. Um, in other instances, uh, it's nothing. It's a year long investigation. And they just say, we've decided that there's nothing to see here. Uh, so you know that when you do find an attorney who has a complaint of blemish on their record, you know it must have been bad. It's mm -hmm. got to be so much worse than what you're reading on the Bar Association website because they really don't come down on, on attorneys. Well, you send out these complaints about these attorneys and or judges, and you get that namby-pamby letter back saying, well, it's not unethical enough. <laughs> Nothing's ever unethical enough. <laughs> it, it is a, to, to borrow an expression, the, all of these people do go to the same Saturday barbecue. Yes. In your community, the attorneys, the guardians ad litem, the parenting coordinators, in many cases, they're all JDs. They all go to the same barbecue. They all belong to professionals organizations in their community. 
that exclude you or me from participating. And they're private organizations, which clearly uh, exist for the financial benefit of their members. Mm-hmm. And to think that you'll, you'll find judges are also members of these professionals' organizations, mm-hmm. which seems like a terrible conflict. And we should raise that, right? To say, Your Honor, I don't think that you should be uh, presiding over my matter because of this conflict. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you're appealing to your judge. And then they get to decide whether or not they think that they should step out. In Florida legislation, it actually says all you have to do is tell your judge in a written or oral motion that you don't feel like you're gonna get a fair shake. That's all you have to say. And yet I know people who have gone much further to file their documents and to, and the judge just denies the uh, request for recusal. Mm-hmm. And, and I, so, so let me, let me, if I haven't said this already, and maybe you and I talked about this offline, I don't believe that it is as much corruption as people uh, would like to think it is. I do think it's terrible dysfunction. And, and I don't necessarily want to get into the different words, but I think that it would be more constructive for us as, as uh, a mob that wants to have this resolved if we used words that the system is more apt to receive. They're more open to receiving uh, criticisms of learned helplessness within their system, apathy within their system, incompetence within their system, because they don't believe that there's anybody getting, you know, kickbacks at least where they are in their little world, right? We could talk about DCF or TPS all day long. There's a lot of dysfunction. There's more dysfunction perhaps in that organization than there is in the others. But I don't think the sheriff's department is getting kickbacks. Mm-hmm. I think they're just incompetent. Mm-hmm. I think there's just terrible dysfunction. Uh, in my own sheriff's department, I or sheriff's office rather, I uh, wanted to make a complaint. And internal affairs said, we're the place to make your complaint. Great. I'll be there tomorrow morning. What time works well for you? The response I got was, we're not going to take your complaint. Wait a minute. You have to take my complaint. They're not going to take my complaint. That I don't think is a product of corruption. It's they don't even understand what to do. To use your words, what you you said earlier, there's terrible uh, lack of accountability. There's no oversight. They have their own reasonableness standards where they decide this is satisfactory behavior. Mm -hmm. They give themselves a pass. They grade their own homework. They're allowed to behave however they want using this quote unquote broad discretion to administer authority, whatever the hell that means. But the effect of it is they adjudicate. They pick and choose winners and losers. They're not allowed to do that. It's against every one of our constitution, every state's constitution. I'm so glad we had this talk. I'd like to have you come back on and continue this. <laughs> I don't want to keep you all day. Um, so I'd like to have you back on. Uh, but uh, how can people reach you if they have any questions? 
Well, since uh, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it, it, it's um, the easiest, quickest way to get a hold of me, and I am a volunteer, so please bear with me if I don't respond immediately. Um, it's my email at National Parents Organization, so you can reach me at Chris Felder at sharedparenting.org. There's no separation between my first and last name, just Chris Felder at sharedparenting.org. Okay. Well, hey, uh, don't jump off. Slam the Gavels, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I am your host, Marianne Petri, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Chris Felder in the future and other exciting guests. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. Thank you very much.